We're in chapter 12 in our series of the Gospel of John. Chapter 12 begins the second half of John's Gospel, which covers just the last week of Jesus' life. So you, you will see in verse 1 that the events in chapter 12 began just six days before the Passover. This Passover that John's talking about in chapter 12 is the same Passover where Jesus is crucified. So the first half of the book covers almost three years, chapters 1 through 11. The last half only covers about a week. So there's a lot going on in chapter 12. It's, it's a very choppy kind of chapter. This one chapter, most of your Bibles probably have uh, seven divisions. You'll see these little subheadings there. Um, and so this morning, we're just going to look at the first 11 and really just the first nine um, First eight, and then we're going to pick back up next week in verses nine and following. But um, this morning, we're, we're just going to slow down a bit. Well, there's a lot going on here, so I just want to slow down. So let's take a look at chapter 12. And remember, that this is just days before the greatest historical event in human history. Okay? So that's where we are. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover... Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would be in awe of the worship that we see from Mary towards Christ. That she was willing to give her very best to make much of you. And Lord, may we uh, do that this morning. May we make much of you with our worship with our attitudes, with our giving. Lord, help us to look at our hearts and see how may, maybe we are more like Judas than we are Mary. So Lord, may we not hide behind others' excuses. May we be honest this morning. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So most of your Bibles, probably there above verse 1, has a little heading, which mine reads, 
Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Yours probably has something similar to that. We, we usually look at this section, we focus on Mary, but I don't want us to miss what John is doing here. Mary is only mentioned in this one verse, but John dedicates five verses to Judas. I think John is intentionally contrasting Mary and Judas with some of these themes that he's been carrying out all throughout this gospel. Beginning back in chapter 1, John began with this contrast of light and dark. Chapter 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. A few chapters later, in chapter 3, Jesus says, verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So I think John is personifying this contrast between light and darkness. Also, I think he's making a play here off of belief and unbelief. That's also a theme he's been carrying out through his gospel. Mary is the one who believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. She demonstrates that belief with this selfless action of anointing Jesus' feet where Judas represents the one with unbelief. He is in the dark. He demonstrates his unbelief with his selfish action. Clearly, John is showing us a comparison between Mary's generous gift and Judas' self-seeking motives. Now, what absolutely terrifies me about this contrast of light and dark, belief and unbelief, this Mary and Judas, is I, th- I think most of us, if, if we're at least, you know, if we're honest, I, I think we might do the exact same thing or think the same thing that, that Judas did. Now, in verse 1, John gives us a marker. He says it's six days before the Passover. So we know where we are, spring, Passover is a spring holiday. Our last marker in John's gospel was the winter feast, the feast of dedication, or what is sometimes better known as the Festival of Lights, or what might even yet be better known as Hanukkah. So a few months have gone by, and Jesus comes back to Bethany, a town that we know is about two miles from Jerusalem. It was in Bethany in the, in the winter where he raised Jesus or raised Lazarus from the dead. So now it's springtime. A time to celebrate life. All things being made new, new leaves, new creatures hatching or being born. And yet in chapter 12, John is intentionally pointing us to death. We're going to see more next week as we work through chapter 12. Uh, Next week we'll get to see the triumphal entry. But make no mistake, this king is marching out towards his death. So over and over in this gospel, whenever the Pharisees have tried to capture Jesus or arrest him, Jesus would always like escape. Sometimes it was like kind of like this weird, like it just like he vanished. He was just gone. And he would say something like, my hour has not yet come. But here in chapter 12, something changes. In chapter 12, we'll see next week that Jesus will look at his disciples and he will say, my hour has come. I think Jesus fully knows that his time on earth is coming to an end. And as he's going back to Jerusalem, he stops to share 
one last meal with some close friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. We see in verse 2 that Martha, of course, served the meal. That's what Martha does, right? Martha loves to serve. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. Uh, we don't know who all is here. It's just those. Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel gives us a little more detail. We know the disciples are there as well. So here Jesus is sitting, having a meal with some friends. You know, we don't know the complete guest list. Um, but Lazarus is there. And, and notice it's been a few months since Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet this is still how Lazarus is identified and probably will forever be. You know, he's Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. That's how he'll always be introduced to people. Hey, this is Lazarus whom Jesus raised from the dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about you. Heard about that. And, and you know when Jesus showed up in Bethany, he never had to pay for anything. You, you, you realize that? Like, like, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Like, he would have been considered like a rock star in Bethany. Like, that, that's Jesus. He, he's the one who raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, this is Jesus' last week on earth, but if he would have lived 50 more years, he'd probably never have to pay for anything ever again in Bethany. It's like when an athlete wins a championship for their city. They, they can eat or drink. Um, for free in that town until they die, right? Like Michael Jordan. You know, um, I'm guessing Mike could go to the most expensive restaurant in Chicago because he won six championships in Chicago. Then someone would pick up that bill. And so Jesus and Lazarus, they're sitting there at the table sharing this meal. And could you imagine the conversation? Like Lazarus is sitting there. He's like, hey, Jesus, you remember that time I was dead? Yeah, man, that was crazy. I mean, the guy was dead, dead for four days. He was dead long enough to where I'm guessing some of his friends had probably already started wearing some of his clothes, claiming his belongings. Can you picture Lazarus coming out of the grave, out of the tomb, seeing his friends like, dude, that's my shirt. And then right in the middle of dinner, Something so bizarre happens. Something that would have been really strange in first century Jewish culture and just as strange in ours today. Maybe for different reasons, but still just as bizarre. Verse 3, John tells us that Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. This might... Seems strange to us, but so would reclining at a table. Like nobody sits down and kind of lays on the floor while they're eating. Um, there's many things in the Bible that are completely normal in first century Jewish culture that would be strange to us. Things like you're not using your left hand in public. In the first century, if you were if you were at dinner with someone and they would reach for the basket of bread with their left hand. You, you would have offended the entire room. You, you, would, you would hear a gasp, like, the nerve. Like, is, he's using his left hand? In that, in that culture, the, the left hand was considered unclean. So you'd not use it. But if you and I, if we were out to dinner and you reached out and grabbed your drink with your left hand, I, I wouldn't be grossed out. I would just think, oh, he must be left-handed. But here, like, this is just 
bizarre. It's strange. What Mary did here, in addition to being bizarre, it, to them it had even been scandalous. So Mary was likely single. So this would have been scandalous for her to let down her hair and then to go to another single man and start to wipe his feet. And as we see in Mark's gospel, not just his feet, but his head. Uh, she's breaking all kinds of societal norms here. This is strange. Now, at first glance, we look at her, and we probably think, and maybe because we've heard this story, we think, oh, wow, Mary, you know, so proud of you. This is, you know, this is incredible. But if we're honest, if we were there that day, I think we'd have all thought this was strange. Like, what's this girl doing? Why doesn't Jesus stop her? I think Mark's account of this gives us the answer. In Mark 14, starting in verse 6, says this, But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And, I, and truly, as I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. See, Jesus didn't look at this as some weird massage from some strange single lady. He looked at this as one of his true followers preparing his body for death. This was a sign of worship. In, in one sense, it's like if she stops pouring the ointment, then, then it's like she's saying it's not time for you to die. And I think Jesus is saying to everyone, you can't stop her from preparing me for my death. She must continue because I must continue. I must die. And so this whole ointment thing, and Jesus even connects these things together her anointing him and preparing him for burial. Uh, this is after someone would die, you would put spices, perfumes on them. And so Jesus is looking at this as he's being prepared for death. We know that the ointment was strong. The text in John says that the house was filled with the fragrance. So everybody smells it. You know, they don't have to see it. They just kind of smell it first. Like, what is that? What's going on? Oh, what, what's, what's she doing? And this must be the verse, I'm, I'm sure of it, that this is the verse that the little old church ladies use to justify putting on way too much perfume. If Mary filled the house of the Lord with fragrance, so shall we. I'm sure that's what they think. Now, thankfully, we don't have those ladies or men here who wear too much perfume. That's not always been the case for churches I've been a part of. There's a church I worked with in my 20s where it seemed like the ladies would compete to see who would get the church to smell like them. Xavier, who's now 15, he was the only baby in the church. There was no toddlers. There were very few youth. So the little old ladies loved Xavier. He was like, you know, he was like the life for the church. Like, there's a baby so they all want to hold Xavier, which we love. The Liv and I love. Like, those ladies loved him. They were sweet and full of wisdom. But every Sunday when we bring Xavier home from church, 
I could tell you who had nursery duty because of how he smelled. We would have to bathe him every Sunday afternoon because we couldn't get the smell off of him. Mary pours this perfume, this ointment, all over Jesus, which is something else that would be strange in our culture. Can you imagine just going up to somebody just dumping oil or ointment all over them? Matthew, Mark's gospel says that she poured it not just um, on his feet, but his head also. And, and so th- this, is, this was not like you going to Walmart, grabbing a $20 bottle of Axe body spray and spraying it all over your pastor. Okay, that's not what's going on here. If you were to spray Axe body spray all over someone, you might, you might think of death. You could. It might lead you back to middle school. Um, but this, notice here, it's expensive perfume. The most expensive perfume on the market today, at least being produced, there are some that are more expensive simply because of the package that they're in. It's diamonds and gold, pearls. But at least the perfume itself is Clive Christian number one. Any of you wearing that this morning? I can't afford Clive Christian number one. I probably couldn't afford Clive Christian number 253 if they made one. One ounce, okay, just one ounce of Clive Christian number one goes for $12,722. That's just one ounce. Judas says here that you could have sold this ointment that Mary had, 300 denarii. So let's put that in perspective. Denarii is a day's wage. If you don't include the Sabbath, because most Jews don't work on the Sabbath, and so they wouldn't be paid. This is this is 300 working days. This is a year's worth of work. This is an annual salary. Mary didn't just squirt some over-the-counter body spray on Jesus. She essentially poured a year's worth of earnings all over the Lord. The average salary in West Virginia is somewhere around 35000 Mary literally dropped thirty-five k over dinner. This is over the top. This is scandalous. And Jesus says, this is beautiful. To anoint the king of all kings, the savior of the world, the Christ, the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world. To Mary, the act seemed fitting. It seemed like not just the right thing to do, but the only thing to do. It's like she thought, as she's holding that in her house, like, what, what can I do with this? You know, I've had this for a while. Ah, oh, I know. Her gift reminds us of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ, that he is worthy Mary realizes it's worth it to give it all to Jesus. She doesn't pick the cheap perfume. She gives her very best. It wasn't like Jesus was hinting around. It doesn't seem like Jesus is like, wow, Mary, you know, what, what is that? What is that you're wearing? It smells really nice. Then Mary goes back to her room and brings it out. And, you know, Jesus wasn't fishing here. They're not, Mark's gospel says they're not even at Mary's house, so Mary brought it there. 
And it doesn't seem like she had used it ever before, you know, on anyone else or herself. Because in Mark's gospel, it says that she broke the flask. So it's either open or not. So she broke it, poured it over his head. It was all for him. The container was brand new. She's probably saving it for some special occasion. And what better occasion than anointing the head and feet of the king? I wonder if there's a picture here. In the Old Testament, when, when there was a new king, there was this anointing where the prophet would take oil. You see this in 1 Samuel 16. Samuel's anointing David, this new king, and he takes the oil and pours it all over on his head, lets it run over him. I wonder if this is a picture here of, of this new king. Mary is anointing this new, you know, Israel's new king. So Mary pours this expensive ointment onto Jesus. Notice how John puts attention on the value. It's not just any ointment, but it's expensive. And how did the others respond to this beautiful act of worship? Oh, Mary, like, that's a great idea, yeah. In John's account, we see that Judas was pretty upset. John makes it clear that Judas had alternative motives with Mary's actions. Um, Ju Judas, who John adds some extra commentary in verse 5, he puts in um, little um, parentheses here, who, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? Sounds great, doesn't it? It's a good question. But he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Jews thinking, man, that 300 denarii, that, you know, that $35,000 should have been put in the money bag, guys. That way we could have given it to the poor. So Judas was just thinking about himself, but in Matthew's gospel, we see that it wasn't just Judas who felt this way. It wasn't like he was the only one in the room that had those kind of thoughts. In Matthew 26, verse 8, and when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have, have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Matthew's gospel makes me think that the author, John, might have been one of those who felt indignant. And maybe this is why John solely lists only Judas. Maybe he felt bad later about how he felt his initial thought. And so John is just trying to put the attention, you know, on Judas off of himself. And so he's making focus of, of Judas. Like, can you guys believe Judas, that he would do this? It's like, Matthew, don't write that down. And Matthew, disciples, they were indignant. But notice that Jesus stands up against them all. Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, 
but you will not always have me. Jesus says that Mary has done something beautiful, and yet she gets criticized by his own disciples. We live in a culture today where it's really easy to join in on the criticism, isn't it? Someone makes a comment, it's like the social media mob is real, and Mary is really close to being canceled. Her devotion doesn't make sense to those around her. It seems like she's being a bad steward. I mean, think of all the good things she could have done with this. And I think there's a good principle here for us. The world doesn't have a problem with religion. Okay, nobody really cares if you're a Christian. They don't. You believe in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus and not upset anyone. You can even believe that Jesus is God. But just don't believe that Jesus is the only God or that he expects you to live a certain way or might condemn your lifestyle. Disciples thought she was too devoted. She had gone too far with her worship. But if we're honest, I'm guessing most of us would have had the exact same response as the disciples. I, I'm, I'm guilty. I would have been, I know I would have had the same thought. You know, why couldn't this have been sold and given to the poor? What is she doing? Jesus says, God, he doesn't need that, right? The poor is the one who needs it, not Jesus. That's, that's a whole year's salary. Disciples are making a morally defensive point. They could have done a lot with that money. But also think that we can use the poor as a weapon against something and that is what John says about Judas. Judas did not really care about the poor, did he? But Judas is not the last person to use the, the poor as the shield for their advantages. This passage reminds us that the, there's tension between being a good giver with being a good steward. And I feel the tension in my personal life and in the church you know, I've shared with you guys, our families currently, we're building an addition to our house. And as I'm refinancing our house, I can hear the disciples in my ear, you're building an addition? But what about the poor? You guys are going on vacation? But what about the poor? Hmm. You bought a, a new truck? Wow, what a waste. For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Do you ever feel torn with your finances? Like what, like, what do we do? Like, are we being good stewards? It's not just personally. You know, it happens in the life of the church, too. You know, how much are you spending to redo the fellowship hall? What about the poor? Think about how all that money could have been used to feed the homeless. Now, all these things are true, but I, I think we can often use the poor as a shield to promote our own piety or even a form of like virtue signaling. Mary spends a year's worth of resources on Jesus. 
a year's worth. And he says she's done a beautiful thing. Did he, did he need them? He's the king of all kings. See, this is so hard for my Appalachia brain to grasp. I'm guessing if you grew up Appalachia, maybe rural life, it's, this is kind of a hard passage to see such extravagance poured out upon Jesus. See, my, my parents would have beaten us for wasting anything. Anybody grow up like that? If I would have spilled my dad's brute cologne, it would have been the end of me. Now, there's like eight of you who know what brute cologne is. But we didn't have much, so wasting what we had would be really insulting to my parents. But Jesus doesn't think what Mary is doing is a waste. He felt it was worthy. He felt he was worthy of that gift. In fact, Mary was the only one in that room that viewed Jesus as being that worthy. Everyone else thought the poor was more worthy to receive Mary's gift. So we learned something here important about God in this passage. Jesus was thinking about himself, and Judas was thinking about himself. One had the right to think about himself, and the other did not. We also see that Mary doesn't hold her possessions too tightly. What about you? We like our stuff, don't we? Even parents were guilty. We love our children, but yet we still hide stuff from them, don't we? We have snacks that are hidden in cabinets that our kids don't know about. We love our stuff. One of the phrases that we often say here at our church is, what are you doing with your time, talent, and treasure? We see that Mary has no problem pouring out her treasures to Jesus. Why? Because ultimately that expensive ointment, that was not her treasure. Jesus was. Mary viewed possessions as an opportunity to bless Jesus. How do you view your possessions? Mary knew she only had that because Jesus blessed her anyways. Everything you have is because God's given it to you. And that means your time, talent, and treasure. Everything's his you will have more joy in your life when you realize that truth. When you realize that everything you have belongs to him, and when you give it back to him, you'll have more joy. How do you view your possessions? Are they a way to self-promote yourself? Or are you willing to use them to promote God's kingdom? But how could you practically do this today? Like, like, we just can't go over to Jesus' house today and pour out your entire set of essential oils over Jesus. He's physically not here anymore. I think verse 8, Jesus has given us some insight here. In John 12, 8, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
we need to be very careful not to make verse 8 say more than what Jesus said. This has been a verse that's been grossly abused. Some have read this verse and they think that Jesus is giving us permission to ignore the needs of the poor because there will always be poor people. Why help them? They're just going to be poor. There's going to always be more people, so don't help any poor people. That's not what he's saying here. His point that he makes is clear. You do not always have me. This is a unique moment in history where Jesus knows he is about to die. But now he's gone. He's physically no longer here on earth. The moment that Mary had with Jesus, you and I cannot replicate that. In Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus goes to the cross, he says this in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all nations. This is what Randy is talking about earlier when he's praying. All nations will be gathered. And He will separate people from another. He'll separate people one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now, there is a great children's book by a guy named Francis Chan about this passage named uh, Ronnie Wilson's Gift. If you're a parent, small children, that is a great book, Ronnie Wilson's Gift. So how do we give to Jesus today? You know, if we can't go to his house, anoint his head and feet, how do we give to him? By taking care of least of these, my brothers, You did it to me. You want to lavish upon Jesus? You want to make much of him? You want to make him feel special and worthy? Then love your church family. Now, this Matthew 25 passage is often misquoted. In fact, yesterday I was on Facebook, which I'm not on there often, and I had a friend who posted this passage, but verse 40 was not what verse 40 actually says. Verse 40, what they posted, said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of these people, you did it to me. It's not what this passage says. This passage says, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think when we misquote this passage, it can lead to a terrible ecclesiology and missiology. Jesus says, if you take care of least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Meaning, if you care for another Christian who is going through a difficult time, 
then you are literally helping Jesus. See, the New Testament calls the church the body of Christ, right? And Christ is called the head of the body. So it makes sense that when we help out other Christians, help out other parts of the body, then we're also helping Jesus. The body of Christ is an exclusive name for the church. It's not this blanket statement for all of humanity. Nowhere does the New Testament call humanity the body of Christ. It's, it's for the Christian. A proper understanding of the gospel should drive us to help the poor. But just don't use this passage to justify helping the poor. There's a number of other passages. Uh, this passage is about helping Christians who are in need. If you want to justify helping the poor, use something like Genesis 1, that all humanity is created with the likeness of God after his image. Um, you know, that's why we help the poor. It's because every person has value and worth. They have dignity. The gospel should empower and equip you to serve your neighbor and to feed the poor. In this passage, Mary exhibits this beautiful combination of generosity and humility. She gives a tremendous gift with no desire for spotlight. It's not like she's trying to just let me do this in front of everybody so everybody will look at me. It's crazy how some of our most sacrificial gifts, some of these acts of love, if we're not careful, can turn into a platform of self-promotion. But Mary, she doesn't promote herself. Her service is not to pay back Jesus for what he had done for Lazarus. I mean, what would it even cost? What would it cost to bring someone back from the dead? It'd be priceless. Mary couldn't pay that price. Neither can we. Salvation is a gift from Jesus. There's no amount of money that you can give or service you could do to pay back Jesus for raising you from spiritual death. That's not why we give. We don't give to pay Jesus back for what he's done for us. You can't pay him back. The moment you start trying to pay him back for what he's done for you, you're no longer saved by grace, you're saved by works. You need to just own it. Lord, I cannot pay you back for what you've done for me. The reason we give is just to show gratitude. Lord, I'm so thankful what you've done for me. It's to show that we don't need these things, that our possessions are not our treasures. Christ is. That's why we give. Mary shows us that Jesus is worth it all, that everything belongs to him. What are you holding back today? Where in your time, talent, and treasures are you just like, I don't know if I'm ready for that. How are you like Judas, thinking like, uh, this part of my life I will give to God, but this part I'm going to keep for me. How are you keeping some things for yourself instead of using them for the kingdom of God? God's given us eternal life. 
with abundant joy. And a proper response is to lay everything down and worship Him. Will you surrender to Him today? Will you surrender your time, your talent, your treasures? Just give them to Him. In His hands, He can do great things with them. In your hands, you're probably just going to waste them. Give them to God. Let Him have control of your life. Let's pray as the band comes back up. Lord Jesus, may we see that you are truly worth everything. That we don't hold anything back or keep some things for ourselves. Pray that we would lavish our very best things upon you. That we would hold our possessions loosely in our hands that we would be generous givers. I pray that Mary would be a picture for us of someone who believes. They see the light, they come to the light, and that the actions of the disciples and Judas were signs of being in the dark, not thinking that you were worthy of such worship. That's from the dark. I pray that we would not think that way, that we would that we would want to make much of you. It would help us to be wise with the church's resources, that we would take care of the poor. Would give us wisdom just over our own personal finances. How are we using our finances on ourselves? Lord, challenge our hearts. Help us not to be lovers of money. Help us to live with our hands open, ready to give to those in need. And Lord, may we make much of you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.